Let me just uh, start out with the message. I'm going to do something I don't really do very often. I got no oh from the front row. How many of you are readers? How many of you read fiction? How many of you uh, rarely read fiction? You read mostly nonfiction. I've noticed this thing about me. Uh, growing up, I used to love fiction. I used to love great stories. I remember The Hobbit. I remember uh, Tolkien. I remember C.S. Lewis. The stories growing up that captured my imagination. Here's what I've noticed about myself as I get older. I get boring-er. Anybody else? No, I'm serious. I just don't read. I mean, my, my son's writing some fiction now, and it's pretty cool. Uh, so I'm reading some of his stuff. Um, but it's... Uh, I've found I just don't read much fiction anymore. I'm always trying to learn stuff about how to be practical and do, you know, make my life better, lead better, or study. And eat. I, can I just, I'm getting boring or even, I, uh, I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to keep using it. I don't, I, and I even talked to my wife when we first got married, we, we enjoyed watching movies a lot. And now I feel like I almost never can sit through a movie. I'm always watching like YouTube, trying to learn stuff about how to like fix things or build things. Anybody else out there? All right, you're boringer too. Okay. And for all of us who are getting boringer as we get older, I just want to start um, with something that might capture our imagination a little bit, and it's going to tie in to the message here. This is from one of my favorite books growing up, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis. It's a classic. And I'm going to sit down and as necessary, because I'm getting older, I'm going to put on some glasses. How many of you, the older you get, you find yourself doing that? <laughs> so if you don't know The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you really need to read this. You need to go read The Chronicles of Narnia. They are classic stories by C.S. Lewis, and really this sets up the story of these four kids who find themselves in a new realm, the realm of Narnia. They go through the wardrobe, and you've got Peter, and you've got uh, Susan, and you've got Edmund, who's kind of the troublemaker, right? And Lucy, the younger sister. And this story, I'm just going to pick it up and read a section where basically Edmund has been a traitor, He's gotten himself in a world of trouble. And there's a dark witch that controls the land of Narnia. And there's a lion, the king of the realm, who's going to give his life in place of the child, Edmund. And along the way, they're going to the place known as the Great Stone Table, where this exchange will happen and Aslan is very sad. And as they approach the, the stone table, he says this, Oh, children, children, here you must stop. And whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And it says, And both girls cried bitterly, though they hardly knew why, and clung to the lion. 
And as they crouch down, the, the, the two girls and, and watched, Aslan approaches the stone table. It says, a great crowd of people were standing all around the stone table. And though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches, which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bullheaded men and spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Cruels and hags and incubuses and wraiths and whores and ifrits and sprites and orkneys and woozes and ettons. Man, ettons are terrifying to me. Here were all those who were on the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. And right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing toward them. And for a moment, the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a, a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come, bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon the enemies, but it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them. Between them, they rolled the huge lion round on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies straining and tugging pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him toward the stone table. It says, once Aslan had been tied on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags holding four torches stood at the corners of the table. The witch bared her arms as she had bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she bent to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the night were made, knife were made of stone, not of steel, as it was a strange and evil shape. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither afraid nor angry, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, listen to this, and now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. C.S. Lewis, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Classic, classic story. As we learn, and if you've read it before, you know, an allegory of the gospel. 
It's an incredible story. I hope maybe as I read a little bit of that to you, it, it caught you up a little bit in the drama. There's something bigger going on. Isn't it interesting how I find in this life it's so easy to just plod along thinking about the day in, day out, the craziness, the busyness, the struggles of the day, and forget that there's a bigger story going on. Forget that there's something happening that we're told in Scripture. Now, that's what I want to look at today in this text. And I want to set it up by, by reading through um, the whole section. I want to pick up one verse from chapter 1. And then I want to read through the whole section we're going to be talking about. Um, a few of the verses we read last week and about five or six of the verses we're going to be covering this week. And then we're going to go back and we're going to really unpack this and look at a bunch of different scripture and unpack some of these ideas. So 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and then in chapter two, he goes on to say this. Uh, he says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory However, it is, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Would you pray with me before we dive into this? Father, we thank you for Jesus. And my prayer as we go through and we dive into this text here today is that you would reawaken in our hearts the imagination and the wonder of the great drama, the, the truest story that we are part of and what you promised to us who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to dive back in. We're going to go back to verse 6 here. And verse 6 says this. Uh, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. So if, if you remember the first chapter, Paul begins to dive in and counter the Sophia, the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of this world, um, and the logos, this idea of what held the universe together. And he begins to say, contrast that. And he says, I'm not coming with these sophisticated arguments. I'm coming with something actually that seems very foolish to the culture. And that's the cross. It's the gospel. The message that God came, and it was through sacrificing himself that victory is achieved. 
It's foolishness, he says. It's a stumbling block. It's a scandal to the Jews because to them, he's just a failed Messiah, wannabe Messiah. To the, to the Greeks or the Gentiles, it's foolishness. Like, what are you talking about? Some crucified criminal halfway around the world? And you're telling me to, to change my life, to give up everything and follow him? You're crazy, Paul. Paul says, I know that's the way it sounds. He says, don't, don't get me wrong, though. We're not against wisdom. He says, no, actually, we speak a, a wisdom, a message of wisdom to the mature, to those that can understand it. But it's, it's not the wisdom, he says, of this age or of the rulers of this age who are, he says, coming to nothing. Now, who are the rulers of this age? It, what you have here, and, and, and this is interesting, as you read through some of the people that have commented on this or some pretty smart people in the past, they've, I, I think, completely missed this. Because when you have the rulers of the age that go, that's just, he's just talking about the, the human leaders, you know, that crucified Jesus, the, the powers and the human authorities. And although this is certainly in view in the scripture of human authorities, there's much more actually in view that Paul's talking about here. And it's all over the Greek language. When you, when you, you come to the rulers of this age, what you got to understand is uh, we, are, we are not alone in this creation. Now you're like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about aliens? Or, no, 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 we're not talking about that. <laughs> That's a different sermon for another night. You know, get into the weird stuff. I'm thinking about doing a series at some point called Stranger Things. I'm trusting a lot of you will enjoy that if we, if we get to it. <laughs> Talk about a biblical perspective on some crazy things in our culture conversations. But here's the thing. What we see, there's a scripture back in Job. And most, uh, many people believe that Job was actually the first book written in the Bible. The most ancient text, even though it comes a little bit before Psalms in the, uh, in, in the arrangement of the scriptures. And there's a, there's a passage in there where God is actually speaking um, to Job, who has sort of been complaining and whining. And he, he confronts Job's understanding of the, the universe. And, and so he asks him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He's like, when this whole universe was created, where were you? And he goes on, and here's here, a really interesting verse. In verse 7, he says, When the morning stars sang together, and if you go look at a bunch of the uh, ancient literature, morning stars, this is one way of referring to angelic beings, okay? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, in the, in the Hebrew, this is the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God shouted for joy. And so here's, here's the picture we get in, in God asking Job. He's like, hey, where were you, buddy? When I created this whole thing. And before creation, before, hum, or before humanity, before the earth was created, what do we see? Who, who are around? Some other people, right? The morning stars and the sons of God, they're called here. These are angelic beings. Angelic beings. And they shouted, they sang, and shouted for joy. Can you imagine being there when God created the universe? When he spoke the world into existence? Right? 
I mean, you would have been like, yeah. I think I've only seen maybe like one or two movies that's like really tried to portray this. But it captures your imagination if you stop and think about it. You have the angelic heavenly realms, and then you have the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars. And as we see in the six days of creation, everything that God creates. And can you imagine how amazing that would have been just to sit and watch as God creates from nothing? And then finally, as he takes on the sixth day the clay and he forms it into a human being, and he breathes the breath of life into their lungs for the first time. Humanity made in the image of God. Who are you? So with that as, the, as sort of the setting, because you see this phrase all over Scripture, and it's really interesting, and I don't have time to really get into the whole narrative thread of this today, but maybe that'll be the Stranger Things uh, series sometime later. But there's these, there's these angelic beings. There's these um, angelic beings called the sons of God, the morning stars that we see that are before humanity. In fact, when, uh, when humanity is referred to, we are referred to as a little lower than the angels on the pecking order of the universe. We're a little bit, we are not as powerful. We are not as smart. We haven't been around nearly as long. We're a little lower than the angels. And yet we're made in the image of God. And he placed us on this earth to have what? Dominion over it, to care for it. And so when you're going through, like you see this phrase, the rulers of this age, this is a Greek word, archonton. And Aenos, the, the, the idea of the rulers of this age. And as you begin to go through other scriptures and look at like, what is he talking about? Is he just talking about the rulers of this age? And how would that even make sense? How would you expect the rulers of this age to understand the hidden plan of God? That doesn't even really coherently make sense if you just think of the interpretation that way, right? But what you begin to discover as you go through the Greek is this idea of these angelic beings, actually. Let me read you a little bit out of Daniel. Daniel 10, verse 4. It says, On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing, Daniel speaking on the bank of the great river Tigris. So he's had this crazy weird vision. If you've read through Daniel, you know how like freaky some of these things are. It completely freaks him out. God shows him some stuff about the future. And he's like, I don't know. And he starts praying, God, show me what this is about. And it says this, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen. Now, all throughout scriptures, when angels appear, they appear, um, they look like us. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians, some of you might have entertained angels unaware. Like when you see the, the pictures in the stained glass from, you know, if you've ever visited Italy and you've been to the great cathedrals and they're like, you know, these weird little cherubs with wings and like bows and arrows. It, that's not the picture you see. Either people are really freaked out when they see them or they kind of appear like, man, this guy freaks him out. Actually, we'll see this. So he's dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning. He's trying to describe this guy, right? 
his, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. This is a bad dude in a good way. Then he continued. Uh, a little while later, he's, he's, Daniel keeps going. It says, then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. This is now the angel speaking to Daniel in this vision. He says, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But, check this out, and this, this is a scripture that always is so interesting to me. But the prince, and when you see this LXX, what this is, is the Septuagint version of the scriptures, which was the translation into Greek a couple hundred years before Jesus. And it's called the Septuagint, which means 70, because these 70 brilliant Jewish scholars get together and um, translate the scriptures into Greek. And this is the version that's most often quoted in the New Testament. And so it's very helpful when you want to understand the Greek language and what, what when they use certain words, what, what it meant. Because we understand, then we have two reference points, right? You have Greek and you have the, the original Hebrew text as well. And we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that we know are from before Jesus' time. Um, they have the original Hebrew. And what's amazing is they haven't changed. Like they're just consistent. You can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. It hasn't changed. Like the argument that, oh, over thousands of years has changed. No. We can literally go back to these ancient texts and, and tiny little editorial kind of things that have happened. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And so this is the Septuagint. Uses this same exact term as Paul used for, for the rulers of this age. The Archenton. So this, what is this? This is a, an angelic being, a prince, and not a good guy. This is one of the bad guys, the prince of Persia. Now, this would draw your mind if you were a reader um, of the scriptures in the, uh, in the first century, around the time of Jesus, around the time Paul wrote, in the time of Daniel. This would draw you back to events that happened at the beginning in Deuteronomy, where there's these spirits, territorial spirits, that have power and control over different nations. There's a table of 70 nations. And there's different uh, spiritual beings called the sons of God, the Bene El Elohim, that have this uh, authority and power to influence nations behind the scene. And they begin to take worship for themselves. And so if you go back and look at all the... Moses says, hey, you guys are sacrificing to all these gods and their demons. Paul says when they sacrifice to idols, they're sacrificing to demons. Now, the Greek doesn't have very many words for these powers uh, in principalities. There's a lot more words in the Hebrew. So we find out there's different classes. These are known as the Shadim or territorial spirits, which have power and authority over countries, essentially. That influence, a dark influence behind the scene. And this angel, the good guy, says... I, man, the second you started praying, the, the very moment I was dispatched to come to you, but in getting here, I ran into spiritual opposition and resistance. That's crazy. That's a little mind-blowing to think about, isn't it? It took 21 days to get through the defenses and get to you. I don't know how that all works, but this is what the scripture says. These, these rulers, these princes, that's what he, he says they are. 
And so it says, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, this is the good guy, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, what you have to understand is the scripture is set up in in the terms of a great arc of history, a great drama of conflict. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. See, as humankinds who were lower than the angels are placed on this earth and given this incredible birthright to have like authority and dominion over this earth to develop it. And essentially God wants to take Eden, this perfect place where the presence of God and humanity come together and see this expanded throughout the earth. And the angels are jealous, some of them, including one. And we see that Um, In Genesis chapter 3, at the fall of humankind, and you you know this, right? Because the serpent, but this isn't any just ordinary serpent, it's called the naftash, comes and deceives the woman and twists the words of God. And humanity takes the fruit and eats, and as they say, the rest is history, right? The relationship between God and Humanity is broken. Humanity is kicked out of the garden. Shame enters the picture immediately. All these great principles. But also, this is the moment when a great spiritual battle on earth begins. And God makes a declaration. He says this in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is called the... uh, the proto-evangelon. So what this is, is the first, many scholars see this as the very first mention of the gospel. That right after humanity falls, God says, hey, there's coming someone. There's coming a dragon slayer. There's coming someone who will destroy the seed of the dragon. Now we find out who the identity of this serpent is all the way at the end of the book in Revelation, as he sees, here's what we learn about him, the dragon, he's the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. The chief instigators of the fallen angels, those that rebelled against God. He is, he's, he's their commander. He's the chief dude. And when Jesus comes, something incredible happens because um, we're told that in John 12, Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince or the archon, again, of this world will be driven out. John 16, it says, the prince, the archon of this world, Satan now stands condemned. His, His sentence has been stamped. He is condemned. He's going down. The, the, the dragon slayer has arrived. Corinthians 15 says this, then the end will come. It's talking about the sequence leading up to the return of Jesus and and the final things at the end. And here's what he says, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and he has destroyed all dominion. Here's this word again, the same root word, arkin, authority and power. He's going to hand it over. He's going to destroy the dominion that evil has in this world still. That legally, at the, when Jesus comes at the cross, um, it's game over. But yet they resist, they hang on, they want to take out as many as they can. And wherever the gospel goes forward and people embrace and trust in Jesus and enter the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, 
Darkness has driven a little more back, but we know it's going to put up a vicious fight until the very end because Satan wants to take out as many. That's why he's called a roaring lion seeking whom he may desire or devour. This is interestingly the same, the same root word as we see in Jude, which talks about a, uh, an account that actually goes back, all the way back to Genesis 6, but it says this, an angels who did not keep their own domain, or literally arcan, again, the same word, but abandoned their proper dwelling place. These he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for judgment of the great day. This is the events that we see in Genesis chapter 6, the Nephilim that lead to the flood, to the destruction of the ancient world. Paul reminds us of this, of the true fact. And see, this is what I think we just miss so often as we're like trying to figure out how to fix things and make our life better and do house repairs and save a little bit more for retirement and running kids every 18 different directions. There's a bigger story going on. Like you can either go through life living like all that exists is what you see and what's around you in your immediate day-to-day life. And I think for so many, even though you grew up in church, you have a worldview that's like, oh, I've heard all this before. I know this. Day in, day out, you live like none of it's true. Or at least like it doesn't matter. I think that's so easy for so many people that grew up in church. That your, your mind's not even in the fact that there's a bigger story going on. Paul says this in Ephesians 6. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, here's that word, the arcas, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a spiritual thing going on. There's a bigger story. It started all the way back in Genesis where the enemy begins to take power and dominion. And God says, I'm going to bring about his ultimate defeat. I'm going to raise up a man named Abraham, and I'm going to raise up a nation. God says, that nation is my inheritance. But then we get to Psalms and this cool prophecy in Psalms 2 where, where God looks at David, and he says, hey, or he looks at, uh, it's a prophecy of the Messiah, and he says, ask me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. We see this is about God going after the nations, drawing people to him. Not just the one nation all throughout the Old Testament that has a a relationship that's on again, off again with the one true God, right? That's what you see. That's why they go into exile. Because they constantly abandon God and go after what? Other other gods, small g gods. They worship these powers and principalities, right? Around them. Think they can do something for them. That that they're the one true God, Yahweh, can't. God says, I'm going to raise up one nation. I'm going to raise up this nation. And it's through this nation, the seed of this nation, through the seed of Abraham. So now we are, we're further down the line, right? Now it's through da- the line of David and Solomon that there'll be a king that comes and is going to win this battle. So Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 2, He says, guess what? The rulers of this age, they're amounting to nothing. They're amounting to nothing. You see this in Psalm chapter 82, this incredible statement made by God to these powers. 
where he says, basically, you're angelic beings, but you're going to die like mere mortals because you abused your power on this earth. I'm paraphrasing. It's just like my, kind of mind-blowing scripture. That's what Paul says. They come into nothing. Whether it's the earthly powers or the spiritual powers behind them that influence and exert influence towards evil and away from godliness and resist the message of the gospel. They're coming to nothing, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2 7, he says, Now, no, he says, No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. You realize there was a time before time? When all there was was God. And God existed, we we see in the scriptures, as a perfect, it's three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect community, perfect love. He didn't need anything else. He created it for his joy. He created us for relationship with him. Because from before even time, he saw you. And he wanted relationship with you. To spend eternity with you. And Paul says, this was a mystery. Another place he says, angels long to look into these things. That might be Peter, actually. Like these are, this blows angels' minds, the mystery that God, he kept it hidden from them. They didn't know. In fact, he goes on, says this in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't get it. Do you get that? None of these spiritual powers understood. Actually, when when you go back, Jesus fulfills 300-some prophecies in his first coming. But a lot of those prophecies can only be understood in retrospect, looking back, which makes me, when, when it comes to prophecy for the future, it makes me a little more humble about saying I probably won't figure everything out, right? Ahead of time. Only the stuff God wants us to see. Because he says, actually, he kept it hidden. Some of it was, was veiled. And he did it on purpose. He tricked them. They fell into his trap. Can you imagine? Okay, here's what you got to understand about these dark rulers and powers. They are not um, omnipotent. That means all-powerful. They are not omnipresent. That means like the Holy Spirit, God, um, is everywhere, always, which is why you, you can pray from any point on this planet and he hears your prayers. It, they're finite. There's, not, they're, there's a limited number of them. This is why people that are like, people usually have go to one of two extremes when it comes to the spiritual realm. They either like there's a demon behind every bush and my headache rebuke in the name of Jesus. You're like, didn't the wind blow like 40 miles an hour and there's a pressure coming in? No, it's a demon of headache. (laughs) Sorry (laughs) to burst your bubble. If you were rebuking the 
the headache demon on the way in here today. But they're fun. They're not unlimited numbers, right? And so people either, there's a demon behind every bush. They overemphasize the spiritual realm. Or C.S. Lewis talks about it. He says, actually, I think um, in our age, uh, the, the opposite thing is we just pretend like there's really no spiritual realm at all. And ever since the Enlightenment in the 1800s, uh, we've had this materialist view of the world that through science we can figure everything out. But the problem is that even science now is showing us that the world just, as, as you dig deeper, the universe gets weirder and weirder. Have you ever studied string theory? Uh, and you start to look at these like tiny little, I don't know what they're called, quarks, and they get smaller and smaller, right? And, and as they study these, what they found out is like, you can mess with one of these things here, and there's one like way over here that's simultaneously doing the same thing. How, how does that work? I saw this weird thing where they were like, played classical music to water and observed the structure, and it like got all nice and pretty, and like, and then they played like death metal to it, and it got all like chaotic. How does that work? That's, that's crazy. That's weird. The truth is, the more we understand about the universe, the more we understand we don't understand. So people make one or the two extremes, either like overemphasizing and focusing on the spiritual realm or uh, usually completely ignoring it and going on like everything is just what I see, material, what's around me. And we believe in heaven someday, but for now it doesn't impact us. That's an error. That's an error. There's a deeper, bigger thing going on. Paul says this in, in, in Colossians. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to, here's a few things, human tradition. According to, so philosophy, philo, philo uh, sophia, the wisdom of humans. Empty deceit human tradition according to, and some of you say elemental principles, but as you go back and you read, um, this is the ESV I'm reading out of right here. I think this translates it better. Elemental spirits, the stoichia of the world and not according to Christ. So these are the, the stoichia. It can refer to basic principles or even basic elements, but it, the way they understood this in ancient cultures was all tied up in the spiritual realm. And Paul's saying, there's deities that you've worshipped in the past that you've come out of these pagan religions. And now some of them, he rebukes them a little later, he corrects them because they're worshipping angels. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. Those are lesser spiritual beings. They're real, but they don't have the power. So it speaks more of, of spiritual beings, these, these kinds of things he talks about in Ephesians, powers, principalities, spiritual beings. It says, for, for in him, who? In Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, there's some spiritual beings. They may even be called, quote unquote, sons of God in the Old Testament. They may be powerful spiritual beings, but they are not the unique son of God, the only begotten son of God who existed from eternity past the one and only who is God himself. What does Paul say? who the fullness of deity dwells in. Don't go after other spiritual beings. Don't mess with all this stuff. In fact, even today we see this like, 
um, this resurgence of, um, in ancient cultures, it was shamanism, right? They would like fast, they would take drugs. And now you listen to podcasts and everybody's doing that again, right? I'm serious. And the weird thing is when they, when they get into these weird spiritual states, um, consistent stories of encountering, encountering these spiritual entities. What's going on with that? People are messing with stuff that's ancient. And Paul says, don't mess with that. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be drawn away by that. Don't think you can find the secret of life in the universe in Ayahuasca or whatever you call it, right? You're going to find deception at the bottom of that path. And tarot cards and sorcery and witchcraft and all this. Oh, there's real spiritual beings. There's a reality to it. It's just a dark reality that's underneath it. It will lead you. It, it may deceive you at first. I listened to this really interesting podcast um, that this lady who is a, uh, a spiritual medium, actually, and then she met Jesus and completely changed her view. She thought she was helping people, and she understood there was a reality. She was connecting with spiritual things that went deeper than the physical realm, um, but ultimately, it, it was bringing bondage. It was bringing darkness. It didn't bring life. It started out like it was going to bring life. But in the end, it just brought bondage. It brought darkness, right? He says the fullness of deity dwells in him in, in bodily form. In fact, this is an ancient creed that the church, as they wrestled with some of these ideas that we find all throughout the New Testament when it came to their faith, this is, this is a faith statement from 325 AD, the Nicene Creed says this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. What does that mean? Man, it's a little mind-blowing. You're not going to fully understand the Trinity, but from ages past, he says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. In other words, no one created Jesus. He has always been, we see this in the beginning of John, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. Now, if it freaks you out talking about um, spiritual things, you believe some, some things that are a little out of the norm in your faith. Right? And was made by man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. In accordance with the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. <laughs> and so we see in John that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten monogenes. The unique means that, means the only Son of God. From eternity past, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We see John tells us about this unique Son of God. He says, no one has seen God at any time. 
John 1.18, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom, the closest place to the heart of the Father, he has explained to him. Jesus comes from the closest place to the heart of the Father to this earth for you and for me. Paul finishes off this Colossians passage like this. And you were dead in your trespasses. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, you weren't in a covenant relationship with God. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. All the word Satan in the scriptures, the accuser. All the things he has to accuse you for. You don't follow God very good. You're a mess. What kind of father are you? What kind of child are you? You are a failure. That's the voice of the enemy. The accusations of the enemy. He says he's canceled all that. He took it on himself. He says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen, this is the big picture. This is what Paul's talking about in Corinthians. They, they had no idea what they were doing. God tricked them. He hid this from eternity past. He says he disarmed the rulers, the archas, there's our word again, and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ Jesus. That this moment at the cross was the moment of victory the moment that looked like the moment of ultimate defeat, where the witch, so to speak, that Lewis writes about, that you know who he's writing about, that old dragon, the serpent, Satan, thinks he's won the day. Narnia, earth will be mine forevermore. But the book doesn't end there, does it? The chapter, there's another chapter. There's another day. There's a first day. I'm just going to read this from my notes. It says this from the next chapter, the deeper magic before the dawn of time. It was quite definitely early morning now, not late night. I'm so cold, said Lucy. So am I, said Susan. Let's walk about a bit. And they walked to the easter edge of the hill and looked down, the one big star had almost disappeared. The country all looked dark and gray. But beyond, at the very end of the world, the sea showed pale. The sky began to turn red. They walked to and fro more times than they could count between the dead Aslan and the eastern ridge, trying to keep warm, and oh, how tired their legs felt. Then, at last, as they stood for a moment, looking out towards the sea in Caraparaval, which they could just now make out the red turn to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met. And very slowly up came the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan round with her. The rising of the sun had met, made everything look so different. All the colors and shadows were changing. And for that moment, they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. 
The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. See, Jesus didn't stay dead. He triumphed over the powers and the principalities through the cross and the resurrection. And because of that, you and I, we have a hope. Here's what, here, we're going to end with this verse, verse 9 and 10. It says this, as it's written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. There is an eternity beyond anything you can imagine in a new heaven and a new earth. And who's it for? Those who love him. Those who love him. Do you love him? Do you love him? Have you given your life to him? Have you trusted in him as the only payment for your sin, as the only way to bring you into relationship with him? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. If you haven't yet embraced what he did for you, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. You can pray a simple prayer like this. And perhaps for some that you've lost sight of the, uh, the beauty of the great story, the great account, the truest story ever written that he's invited you into. Maybe you want to pray this prayer as a prayer of saying, man, I've gotten off track. I want to love you more and live my life for you. Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe in you. That you are the only begotten Son of God, that you died and rose again for me. I trust in you for my salvation and for my life. Help me love you every day more and more. I want to live my life for you. Remind me of your bigger story and of the future you have in store for me. Thank you, Lord. Amen.